you'll be finding that, Matthew chapter 13. I just want to say it's been good to be home, and I, we try to listen to uh, all the messages and the services when we're not here. Sometimes we get behind, but we enjoy the hearing them, the preaching, not only Pastor Weiss, but other people who fill the pulpit. It's a blessing to us, and I'm uh, really thankful that the Lord would allow us to uh, be in this place, this time in our life. We're, we'll be here this week, just to kind of let you know, we'll be gone the next two Sundays after today, the next Sunday being a missions conference in the Kansas City area, the following Sunday, a 100th anniversary service and missions conference in Texas, and then we should be home for several months, so it's going to be a blessing, so we're looking, we're looking forward, we, it's all good to us, you know, traveling's good. Trying to stay awake on the road is good, and uh, my wife preparing all these messages is good, and uh, but being home is good as well. We appreciate our church family, and I know I've told you this numerous times. I was just we were just in Sioux Falls this week, and um, at a conference, and I get asked frequently about how things are going, how the transition is going, and it's just a real blessing to be able to say it's going well, that God is blessing and God has led us into this transition and through this transition. And uh, I just tell you, I'm, I'm very, very thankful, and I thank the Lord, and I thank you, and I'm thankful for His grace, and God is good, and that I just still get to hang around. That's a real blessing. I've been thinking a lot about um, the Lord coming back, and I've been thinking a lot about passages in Matthew regarding that, and uh, particularly these, uh, these um, parables in Matthew chapter 13. If you're there, we're going to kind of do an overview of the chapter, but also focus in on a few particular things. If you have your place in Matthew 13 and you're able to stand Let's stand together for the reading of the scripture. We're going to look at the parable uh, often referred to as the parable of the, uh, the wheat and the tares, beginning in verse 24, if you'll find that place. Matthew 13 and verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. You have these tares growing alongside the wheat and you couldn't really tell the difference until the wheat came to a head, started producing fruit, and then it became obvious that there were tares there that were not wheat. Verse 27, So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then you have a couple of other parables, but then in verse 36, the disciples asked Jesus to explain what he had just taught them about the wheat and the tares. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Help us to understand this. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word and for the opportunity we have together tonight to just to open up the Bible, to worship you, to be edified by the good music, to sing praises, Lord, to your name. Father, to experience what you have provided for us in our church family, in the assembly, the body of Christ, where you have promised to meet with us. God, may we never take it for granted. Lord, we, with purposeful hearts tonight, say thank you for this great privilege is ours to have a Bible, to be in a sound church, to know the truth of the gospel, to have the hope of eternal life, and Lord, to be your children we're blessed tonight. We pray that you would bless as we study. Help us to be attentive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. These, this entire chapter is a chapter devoted to a number of parables. And all these parables have to do with the kingdom of heaven. The verse we read first, verse 24 says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto. So all these parables have to do with the kingdom of heaven. We're going to just kind of do an overview, as I said. And, you know, I think it's, this, it's interesting that in this particular um, chapter, as well as Mark chapter 4, you know, the disciples were curious about this matter of parables and why Jesus taught in parables. And sometimes people have the, in, the impression that he taught in parables to make truths more apparent to those that listen. But, in, but when he explained it, he taught in parables so that they that didn't really have, have any connection to him or have any desire to follow him would not be able to understand it. And there are many things about it that as you read over it and read over it, you think, well, I, you know, I think I've got this, and you'll see something about it you never saw before and some application of it. And, you know, it's interesting. If you look in verse 51... Jesus said unto them, Have you understood all these things? Have you, have you got it? 
They say unto him, Yea, Lord. I think they're lying. <laughs> but that's what we always act. We always act like we've got it, right? But when we may not even have it. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure after us having so many years to study and study, if we don't have it, they probably didn't have it either. So this, you know, this matter of the kingdom of heaven is just to mention a couple of things about it as we get into it. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, is mentioned 33 times in the New Testament. All of them in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is considered by those who study the Gospels. The Matthew is the, really the Gospel of the kingdom. The Jews were looking for the king and they were mis misunderstanding what the king was really about. And even in this chapter alone, there's a dozen or more references to the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom is not talking just about the millennial reign of Christ. Some people think that. And as a matter of fact, some people make, and you may believe this, some people make a strong distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But I think those terms often are used interchangeably. As a matter of fact, I could show you in the scripture where in one gospel, in Matthew's gospel, the very conversation will say kingdom of heaven. In Mark's gospel, it'll say the kingdom of God. So they're used interchangeably. And, and really, the kingdom is not just the millennial reign of Christ. The kingdom is where Jesus is king. And as a matter of fact, Jesus said in the gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God is within you. So, so we have a kingdom inside. If you're saved, you've got a king. There should be a kingdom working in your life. Because Jesus is your king. But when Jesus, you know, when Mark, when, uh, the Bible records when Jesus went out, he went out and preached, you know, the kingdom of heaven is upon us, the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist had to say the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is here, is nigh. And when Jesus sent the disciples out, they went out saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, so, the, so this was their message. The kingdom, the king has come. The king is coming, and he did come, and he is king. Now, if you look at this whole chapter, and I just want to do this for the sake of, I think, lending some explanation to the text we're going to deal with. You have all of these parables, beginning in verse, uh, we're, we're in Matthew chapter 13. Beginning in verse 3, where Jesus began these parables, and he, and he gave a parable about a sower that went forth to sow. We're not going to read that, but the sower sowed the seed. And the, the emphasis there is on the word being sowed. As a matter of fact, in the explanation of this, Jesus said in verse 19, he was explaining this parable, and he says, when one heareth the word of the kingdom, that's the gospel of the kingdom. And the significance of that is the word, but also the condition of hearts. You have four different kinds of soil. You'll remember that. Some fell by the wayside, some fell on stony ground, some fell among the thorns and the briars. Some fell on good soil and brought forth fruit. The emphasis there is on the condition of the heart. The, the seed is sown, but the condition of the heart is going to determine the fruit that's born. And then you have the wheat and tares. We'll get back to that in a moment. Look in verse 31. We have the parable of the mustard seed. And we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more later. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field and the least of all seeds but it grows into a great tree and the birds of the air come and lodge in it and then after that verse 33 the kingdom of heaven is like leaven 
which a woman took. She took the leaven. She put it in three meals of uh, three measures of meal, till the whole the whole was leavened. And so, another lesson about the kingdom: the mustard seeds a lesson, wheat and tares is a lesson, uh, the leaven is a lesson. Verse forty-four: the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field. When a man finds it, he hides it, hides it, and for joy, I'm just kind of reading through, paraphrasing. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a man finding something in a field that's worth everything he owns to get that, to have that field. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. When he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. So all these are about the kingdom. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like to a net. It's a fishing analogy that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, sever the wicked from among the just. So we have all these parables that are very fascinating reading. And if you took each one individually, which we're going to do with the wheat and tares, that, they stand alone, but it's really interesting when you look at them all together. And so we have these principles that pertain to the kingdom. And in the first parable, the kingdom, or the, the, the lesson is that the sower sowed the seed, and the seed was the word of God, and it fell upon various kinds of soil. But this, back to verse 24, here, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field, but the good seed there is not just the seed sown, the good seed there According to verse 30, 37, it says, He answered and said, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world. The good seed there is not just the Word, but the good seed of the children of the kingdom. And then you have these tares that are present. Verse 38 says, The tares are the children of the wicked one. And so uh, verse 39 says, The enemy that sowed them is the devil. We're going to talk some tonight about the activity of the devil. The word devil there in verse 39 is the word diabolos. He's a liar, he's the accuser, he's a slanderer, and he's putting these tares, these imposters, in around the wheat. The tares appear with the wheat. They grow up with the wheat. But the tares were planted by the devil, and the good wheat is planted by Jesus Christ. And... They, the tares resemble the wheat. I'm sure you know this, but if not, you know, even the, even the farmers couldn't tell the difference. They look so much alike each other. Um, and the only time you can tell is, is when the one begins to bear fruit. And then you can say, this is really not wheat. This is really a tear. They look like, they resemble the wheat. They, look, they appear with the wheat, but they're not actually wheat. They're going right alongside the, 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 the wheat, but they're really tares. Now, one of the things uh, that I think is um, very clear in this passage in Matthew 13 is the activity of the enemy. Now, I think this is important. We recognize how the devil works, how he has worked, how he is working, how he will work. Just again, to refresh our minds in Matthew chapter 13, in verse 19, Jesus explaining this one says, the word, Whoever hears the word of the kingdom and understand it not, then cometh the wicked one 
and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. So we have the activity of the devil. Verse 25, here in the wheat and the tares parable, the enemy came and sowed tares. The enemy came, Satan came, and sowed tares among the wheat. In verse, you know, we, fi we find all these references. In verse 28, he said unto them, an enemy hath done this. In verse 39, we read this a moment ago, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. So here's something very clear about the kingdom of heaven, and that is the devil is always at work. He's always undermining. He's always present. He's always trying to steal away the word. Anytime the word is sown, the devil's trying to steal it away. I mean, what we're doing today, we're sowing the word of God. What you do when you witness to someone, maybe you're sowing the good seed of the word of God. Sunday school hour this morning, some truth is being sown. And every time the seed is being sown, the devil's trying to steal it away. He's good at it too, by the way. And how does he do that? By making us question us, by making, having, having us to miss it, think that's not really important, this doesn't pertain to me. He's always trying to do this, and he's always relentlessly trying to infiltrate the ranks of the children of the king with his own children, sowing tares among the wheat. And they're planted by the evil one. Even Jesus, when you look at what Jesus did when he was dealing with the religious people in his day, he referred to those leaders, he says, you're of your father, the devil. Now that wasn't just a play on words or hyperbole. No, he says, you're really of the devil. Great corruption exists in the kingdom. It doesn't just exist, it flourishes. And really we see this in society, we see it in government, and we even see it in religion. It's the work of the enemy. You know, I... I don't know about you, but I think we would have this in common. I'm really perplexed by the evil that's in our world. That the thing, the way that our world today doesn't look anything like the world that we grew up in 50 years ago. You say, well, what's changed about it? Ch people have changed about it. I mean, I, my wife and I graduated from a large high school there were, there were hundreds in each class, and it was like any class, they had four, several classes there. We Probably well over a thousand people, I guess, hun, many, many hundreds. And I don't know of one person in our whole school that was a man that thought he was a woman. But now you've got all this confusion. By the way, God is not the author of confusion. Who is? It's the devil. And so you can't explain all of this nonsense in non-spiritual ways. You can't. It's not all emotional. It's not all mental. There's a, there's a spiritual battle that's going on and people are being deceived. And, and it doesn't just affect, though, society. And this is really... I'm, I'm reluctant to go down this road, but I'm not going to go down the road. I'm just going to mention it. This corruption has filled our government and the governments of the world. And you say, why would they? Because the, the agenda of the devil is to get a one universal government, one world government, controlling all the money, controlling all society, controlling all the people, and that's exactly where this is headed. You say, how do you know that? Because it's in the Bible. Just re you read the last book and it's there. And so, so we have all this corruption and all this evil that is going on 
And it's you and this is what Jesus said. And I'm kind of, this is all kind of laying the foundation, but this is what Jesus said. There's two there's two societies in history that you can always look at and know what it's going to look like when he comes back. And one of them was the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Jesus said. It'll be like it was in the days of Lot. And we know what that was like, right? Or it'll be like the days of Noah. Jesus said this, it'll be like it was the days of Noah when it got so corrupt, so evil, so wicked, that finally God says enough is enough. I'm going to destroy this entire human race with the exception of Noah and his family. Now, if Jesus said the day that we'll see him return looks like that, I don't think it should surprise us that we're seeing more and more of this kind of nonsense in our life. And, I go, and I'm not trying to brag on the devil, but I'm just telling you, he has been at work doing this a long time, and he's still busy doing it. But it's not just true in society, and it's not just true in government, but it's also true in the religious world. Go with me, if you would, to verse 31. And something that I'm perhaps you've never thought about or whatever, but when Jesus said, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so, so large a tree, that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, everybody may not agree with this point, but, but this is what I strongly believe. When it talks about the birds of the air, I think, it's, I think it's talking about the very same thing that happened when the seed was sown in verses 3 and 4, and the fowls came and devoured them up. I believe the birds of the air are representing demonic activity, satanic activity. And you say, how does that have to do with Christendom? I think what that's telling us is, and I use the word Christendom, not talking about true Christianity, but talking about the religious world. You plant this little seed of the gospel, and it was a pure seed, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the fowls of the air are just lodging in the branches. And so we see that corruption in the religious world as well. I mean, how else could you explain what's going on in so-called, you know, Christendom? You know, when you have all these different, you know, when you have churches, I've seen this in my own eyes, Baptist churches flying, not independent Baptist, but Southern Baptist churches, flying the pride flag right outside the front of their church. How do you explain what should be a conservative gospel preaching church supporting the pride agenda. I tell you, that's, that's satanic deception. That's not normal. We're, we're not living in a normal world. This is an abnormal world, but Jesus told us what it was going to be like. And so you got all these different birds of the air that's lodging in this large monstrosity of religion. And, and you can see it everywhere. People... You know, Protestants, mainline denominations, uh, people, you know, Baptists joining hands with people that believe 
that you have to have baptism in order to be saved. That's, by the way, that's a false gospel. To say that you have to be baptized in order to be saved is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is another gospel. But you see now where Baptists are wanting to join hands with those folks and say, well, we're all kind of like... No, that's just all these fowls of the air, in my estimation, just lodging in the branches of the trees until it's just become a monstrosity. And when, and when religious groups say that, that that pride, I hesitate to even use the word pride, but pride is an evil thing, so we might as well use it. That pride, This pride movement is, is Christian, I'm telling you, that's, that's demonic. It should, not, it should not surprise us, you know, to see the Bible describing the apostate religion of the last days. Now, we, I'll, I'll just give you some good news. That if you read further into the Bible, we're going to see the judgment of the great whore. This great false... By the way, when churches, when Baptist churches, Protestant churches, Catholic churches all join hands, I'm telling you, you're looking at something that is evil. It's not just a mistake, it's evil. And, and you say, why? Because they, how can two walk together except to be agreed? And if you're wrong on the gospel, you're wrong. I mean, it's, I mean that, that, that to me is a great dividing factor. If you're wrong on the gospel, you're just wrong. And Paul said, if anybody bring any other gospel than the gospel I brought unto you, let him be unto you a curse. Let him, it's, it's a cursed gospel. It's cursing people that believe in it. But the good news is the great whore is going to be judged and the false prophet and the Antichrist and the Satan are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And that's good news, isn't it? Their day is coming. Now, having said all that, I just want to spend a few moments focusing on where I began in Matthew 13, verse 24 and 25. And I please look at that with me, if you would. Because I think all of this other I've just talked about pertains to this. In verse 24, it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And we know what that good seed is. That good seed, according to the explanation, are the children of the kingdom. He sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And there's a phrase there that I want us just to, to really focus in on for a little bit. When it says, while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. So the enemy's work is going to continue to advance. He, this is how the devil works when men slept. He works under the cover of darkness. He works in secrecy. He works in deception. He works in stealth. But there's a connection between these two realities. When men slept, then the enemy was sowing tares among the wheat. And I think there's significance to that. I, the devil, the devil has been working for a long time, ever since he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He's been working, working to deceive people, working to confuse people. We're seeing it, we're seeing it as much today as anything in my lifetime. So he's going to work, and before his end, he's going to have such a following according to the Bible, that, that everyone, virtually everyone on the planet 
is going to take his mark in order to buy and sell and the blasphemy is going to become uh, worldwide. We think we're seeing blasphemy now. This is a blasphemous generation. But I'm telling you, it's going to get worse. You, that's, that's just negative. I'm just telling you what I believe the Bible teaches. And so, so he's going to work. But he works best. Here's the point. He works best when men are sleeping. When men are sleeping. When the... It says, while men slept, in verse 25, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now, I kind of like to sleep. I'm, never, I'm not a lover of sleep. Um, my wife knows that. But the older I get, the more I kind of enjoy my sleep. And I used to really look at sleep like it's a waste of time. But it's really healthy. It's good for us, right? To, it's... it's it's nothing wrong with that. It's necessary. It's good. But this, this is referring not just to physical sleep. This is referring to spiritual sleep. And that doesn't mean just sleeping in church, physically sleeping. No, it's talking about, it's, talking, it's an undesirable condition. And we're going to look at that in the Bible for a little bit. What, is, what does it mean to be spiritually asleep? It means we're not in tune. We're not in touch. We're just sluggish. We're, we're in a spiritual stupor, a spiritual dullness. It means we're not awake spiritually. We may be physically awake. You know, uh, people do a lot of things uh, while they're asleep, right? People talk in their sleep. Uh, people laugh in their sleep. People walk in their sleep, right? You can do a lot of stuff while you're asleep. People sleepwalk. And, and, and when people are spiritually asleep, they may be sitting in church with their eyes open and their Bible open, but they're not really awake spiritually. They're not really in tune spiritually. You know, I was reading this afternoon in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul said this, Awake thou that sleepest. In other words, he's talking to people, Ephesians chapter 5, people of the church at Ephesus, people that were we're believers, I'm sure. He said, you need to wake up. And really, I really believe that there is a real tendency in our generation for people to sleep. And, you know, I've watched people, this doesn't pertain to anybody here tonight, but I've watched people over the years, I've been watching people listen to sermons for a long time. <laughs> And I've seen people come into church and like they intentionally get relaxed. Like they're, they're not even going to try to stay awake. I mean, they're just, they're gone. They're a goner, right? And I've, ne I've never really been able to relate to that. I mean, I, I've been tired in church before, but I don't think they'd be doing that if they was at the St. Louis Blues game, right? Or at the Cardinal game or going to the rodeo. I don't think they'd have that problem. I think there's a... You know, and I'm not talking about a medical condition. I'm talking about just the fact that we're really not we're really not in tune with what is going on. That's what it is to sleep spiritually. It means we're really not engaged. We're really not focused. We're really not sensitive to what's going on. We're like in this stupor. And let me turn. You're in Matthew 13. Go to the right to Mark chapter 13. And I just want to look at the, this language as it pertains to this subject. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 32. 
Jesus has just been teaching in Mark 13 about the coming of the Lord and the pending judgment. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's teaching about. The last days. Verse 32 he says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And then he says this, Take heed, take ye heed, watch and pray. For you know not when the time is. Now, what does that word watch mean? It means to stay awake. Watch doesn't mean like you're just looking, like you're bird watching. Watching means you're staying awake. You're not going to go to sleep. Verse 34, the Son of Man is as a, the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house. We saw some of that this morning in the lesson. And gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. Again, every time you see the word watch, it means stay awake. Verse 35, watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Now he's not saying that you can't ever sleep. He's not saying don't let your eyes close, just stay awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week, don't ever go to sleep. That's not what he's saying. He said, don't let yourself be lulled into a state of where you're not really focused and you're not plugged in and you're not sensitive to what God is doing. And it can happen to anybody. And I say again, when the more we sleep, the more the devil works. The devil's going to work. You can't stop him from working, but we can hinder him from working. He works best when people are asleep. When husbands are asleep spiritually, the devil's trying to work on their family. You know, when church members and pastors may be asleep, the devil's trying to work. And so this, this is a real warning from Jesus to stay awake. Look in verse 36. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, Jesus said this, I say unto all, watch. Now imagine you're listening to Jesus say this. He says, watch and pray. He says, watch ye therefore. He says, he, don't let him... When he comes, find you sleeping, and he says, watch. Now, if he says this over and over and over again, why is he saying this? It's because there's a tendency to let ourselves be lulled to sleep spiritually. Where we may, you know, you could, you could be in a service and even be singing the songs and not be really worshiping God. You can be read your Bible and not really be focusing on what you're reading. You can be praying and not really be focusing and I'm just saying, what can we do about what's going on in our world? One thing we can do is stay awake spiritually. And that's what these admonitions to me are all about. To, to stay awake, to be alert. You know, if you look, let me, let me look in, uh, go to Ephesians for just a moment. And I'm going to kind of reduce the length of this sermon just a little bit. There's so much here I'd like to say, but I just want to look in Ephesians chapter 6. This great passage that we all love about spiritual warfare. Verse 10, Ephesians 6, 10, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And you're very familiar with this. Verse 13, Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Verse 14, Stand therefore, Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now look at verse 18. Praying always 
with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching, watching, and that word watch means stay awake. Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I really believe that, the, that somehow the devil um, is just really working overtime in this. I, I really believe Jesus is coming soon. I don't know when he's coming. He may not come in my lifetime. I'll be a bit disappointed, but that's okay. I want, to, I want to see him come. But whatever the case may be, one of the things that's, that's allowing him to do the work that he's doing in families and in individuals and in children and marriages and churches is the fact that we're ignoring this admonition to stay awake. You know, while men are sleeping, the enemy is at work. And by the way, the, none of us are exempt from this. I'm not exempt from this. You know, I... I, I think about this myself. Am I, you know, t staying as spiritually sensitive, as spiritually alert, as plugged in spiritually as I can be? You know, I, I personally believe this, and this, I can't give you a chapter and verse on it, but I, I kind of think the older you get, the harder it is to stay awake. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. You know, you can kind of put things on hold or autopilot or let somebody else do the praying, or somebody else do the whatever. But I'm telling you, the warning that I see from the Scripture is we need to stay awake. I, even as preachers, I preached this to myself. I was reading, and this pertains to this. Isaiah wrote of Israel's watchman. By the way, what does a watchman do? He doesn't just watch. If he's on the night watch, he's not just watching, he's awake. He's staying awake. Israel's watchman, this is what the Bible says, his watchmen are blind they're all ignorant. They're dumb dogs. They cannot bark. What a useless dog. Cannot bark. <laughs> and then it says this about these watchmen. I'm talking about prophets. False prophets. Israel's watchmen. They not only are like dumb dogs that can't bark. It says they're sleeping. Lying down. Loving to slumber. They're not awake. I'm telling you. I believe that there is... I don't know about, I have a hard time trying to figure things out. What is happening in our world? What's happening in churches? What's happening to, to, to people's beliefs and their standards? And what's, what's happening to people? And I think a part of the thing is, people are they're just, they're being lulled to sleep like nothing really matters. Like we're just going through the motions. But I'm telling you, uh, when men slept, the enemy advances his agenda. And I just want to encourage us all tonight to take this thought and just look at your own life. You know, we have to be honest about our spiritual condition. I want to go with me to Proverbs for a moment. I, I was reading this this afternoon. Proverbs, because it pertains, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 26 we need to be honest about where we are spiritually. Look in verse 12, Proverbs 26 and verse 12. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? That doesn't mean he's really wise, but his pride has made him think he's wise. He's wise in his own conceit. There is more hope of a fool than of him. 
And then we see this reference to the slothful. The slothful man saith, there is a line in the way, a line is in the streets. In other words, he's making excuses. I can't go out. There's a line out there. I may get hurt. As the door turneth upon his hinges, so does the slothful upon his bed. The, the slothful hides his hand in his bosom. It grieves him to bring it again to his mouth. He's lazy. He's slothful. And then it says this in verse 16. Similar language from verse 12. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. In other words, a, la- a person who's a sluggard is a person who's slothful, a person who's, who is uh, really sleeping, is, don't really, can't really see it. He's wise in his own conceit. And I think one of the things we have to be willing to do is be honest with ourselves really about our spiritual condition. You know, just about any of us, or any person for that matter, can convince themselves that they're okay when they're really not okay. Just because we say we're okay, just because we think we're okay, doesn't necessarily mean we're okay. We need to have an open mind. I'll tell you, slothfulness is a serious enemy. Just being, just coming to the place where we're really not doing our job, we're not taking a stand, we're not helping our family, we're not, we're not contending for the faith once delivered unto the saints. We're, there has, we have to be honest about that. And, you know, we think about this, these parables. Um, there's a real, what I think embedded in this is a temptation to be half-hearted, to be content, to be complacent. You know, the, the church in Laodicea was known for their lukewarmness. You know, you don't have to do anything to drift toward lukewarmness. It just comes natural. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a fairly, I'm pretty much an expert on lukewarmness because I drink coffee and I like it hot. And you don't have to do anything for that coffee to get lukewarm. Now I want to tell you, you don't have to do anything for your life, spiritual life, to become lukewarm. It just happens. It happens happens without you doing anything. But if you're going to stay zealous, if you're going to stay serious, if you're going to stay awake spiritually, we're going to have to work at it. Lukewarmness is acceptable. I'm telling you, lukewarmness is acceptable to men. But it's not acceptable to God. God is not pleased with that. Romans says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And we can, I'm thinking about our missions conference. The missions conference ought to be an occasion for us to really renew our vision for lost humanity. It's not, you know, we we could become like the priest and the, uh, in the Gospels and the Levite, couldn't think of what the word was, the priest and the Levite who walked by the man on the road to Jericho had been beaten up and left for dead. And we can become just like that, where we walk right by people. And, and it, they didn't just ignore him, 
they, they walked around him. They didn't want to be bothered by him. And it took a Samaritan, who's no friend of the Jews, to go and bind up his wounds and show he cared. I'm just telling you, the missions conference ought to be a time for all of us saying, God, help me to see people like they really are. Help me not to be lulled asleep where seeing people go to hell and seeing lives destroyed and seeing marriages destroyed and seeing churches hurt. Help me not to get to the place where I just, I'm ho-hum about all this. And I tell you, it's easy for that to happen. And the more we sleep, the more the devil works. Is he going to work? Absolutely. He has worked. He is working. He will work. But he works, he works with more effectiveness when men are asleep. To me, it's a wake-up call. For men, yes, but the word there, when men are asleep, is not the word that's used just for males. It's anthropos, men and women, human beings. And I would like, really, in a way, that's what revival is. Revival is just getting spiritually awake. And I pray that we would continue to see that, that kind of reviving in our church. We have an enemy, and he's real. By the way, the enemy's not the brethren. The enemy's the devil. The real enemy's the devil. I'm going I'm to just emphasize one, two words, Matthew 13, and we're done. Look, go back to Matthew 13, if you would. Just talking about this fact that the, the enemy is the devil. In verse 24, it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man. Who is that man? It's the Son of Man, Jesus said in verse 37. He's talking about himself. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. Emphasizing his. Have it underlined. It's his field, not our field. It's his field. But verse 25 says, But while men slept, his enemy, talking about Satan. He's not just our enemy, he's the enemy of the Lord. It's his enemy. And when we're sleeping, he's at work. And I don't want him to work. I don't want him to work in my life. I don't want him to work in our family. I don't want him to work in our circumstances. I don't want him to work in our church. Is he going to try to work? He's always trying to work. And if you don't believe it, you're, 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 you're probably asleep. He's always working. But he especially works when men sleep. So let's ask God tonight to help us not to, not to go to sleep. You know, my wife and I drive quite a bit these days. We take turns. I drive when, when it's not necessary to get there in a hurry. When we have to get there in a hurry, she drives. Not really. But we don't like to drive after dark. We avoid it if we can. Because you get sleepy and you can't see as well. And I want to tell you, the world is getting darker in a hurry. And the tendency is for people to go to sleep. Don't let it happen. Amen?